0: down in Godalming for a while, um, for a few years. And one day I was chatting to a friend on my way down there to work and he asked me where I worked. And I said, well, I work in Nathan's up in Queen Street running the Christian bookshop. When I said that to him, he reacted in a surprised way and said he hadn't thought about Christianity for years because he thought science had disproved all of that. And I told him that I'd been a science teacher and didn't agree with him. (laughs) So we had a bit of a, a chat. But there's a big question there, isn't there? What should we say to people who think like my friend? I think there are many who think like that. You may have people like that in your family. I certainly do, several of them. I believe we should be able to explain why we think they're misguided. The scripture reading we've heard gives us some guidance about how to do this. Now the key verse in 1 Peter 3 um, is this one. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So we should, I believe, be able to explain our view gently, explaining why we think they're misguided in their views. And I think there are an awful lot of people out there who think that way. Um, The other passage uh, is is interesting and helpful too. You'll see the general drift of what Paul is saying is he, he gets alongside people and tries to appreciate their view and try to argue, really, I think, in ways that they would find helpful because he's trying to get through to them uh, the truth of the gospel. Now, I think that passage, therefore, shows us That we need to use the type of arguments that they might use themselves. Now this means we've got to try to understand the issues so that we can help others to know. Now firstly, let's let's look at how this scepticism that um, I think is behind these attitudes grew up. At the the start of the 19th century, most people, I think, would have believed that the world was only about 6,000 years old and they believed that really on the basis of the Old Testament and Genesis. They also believed that God had created human beings, and also all of the other living things that are are known on the earth. These views um, came partly from Genesis, as I've said, um, as direct statements, but also from genealogical tables. I mean, we've all read, haven't we, some of those A begat B and B begat C and so on. working through that um, somebody by the name of Bishop Usher who was actually a a bishop in the Church of Ireland um, in the 1600s worked out that the earth if if you fitted all these um, people uh, back in the the likely ages and so forth it would have given you um, the earth as being 6,000 years old. I think, I think at one stage they actually believed that the, the world was, was f- formed or created in 4,004. I think he worked it out as being, I don't, I don't know if it was a Thursday afternoon or whatever. <laughs> but uh, now some people may actually believe that sort of picture. They may believe that the world is 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 just six thousand years old, and if that's your view, fine. The problem is, though, I think if we try to uh, just state that to to p- the sort of people that I'm talking about, who possibly have got a sort of a more scientific background, I don't think it's going to make much impact. So I think we've got to actually understand the argument the, the arguments. Uh, that those sorts of people would appreciate themselves. Now, let's see how the skepticism grew. During the 19th century, many came to believe that the earth and the rest of the universe were much, much older than 6,000 years. People had discovered uh, fossils of, of creatures and plants, and many of these clearly no longer existed. They died out. Now that suggests that the earth was, wasn't a mere 6,000 years. They didn't feel there was enough time for these changes to have occurred. They also found in some places um, that there were layers of rocks that have built up, there's an example, and it looks as if various layers have been laid down in the earth, um, probably from deposition while this was under the water. So you get one layer laid down and then maybe another layer and so on. Now that would presumably have taken quite a long time in some places, the layers were very much rucked up. You can see that as if everything's been pushed along like that. Um, If that happens, clearly enormous forces must have been involved to do that to rock. Now, in the absence of really any real information about how long ago this had happened, they took the simple way out in general, which was that the Earth had always been there. Um, they, didn't, they sort of suggested that there hadn't been a creation. The universe had always been there and our Earth had always been, had always been there. There's, see, the move starting here, away from the Bible. To so then, at that time, and I'm talking here, I suppose, about the middle of the 19th century, explaining how life started wouldn't have seemed a great problem. They believed um, when they looked at cells, I'm going to show you a series of pictures of cells that, you, that they might have seen under a microscope. All died, of course, so that they can be seen more easily. Uh, that one I don't think is died. <clears throat> if you look at each of those, they look, I think, like bags of chemicals there's, um, let's just flip back, you can see there's a sort of a boundary around each cell and inside there's cellular material. And their idea was that these cells could have formed in water where there were lots of chemicals, of course, uh, floating around and they could come together and form cells like this. They didn't see that as being a great problem. And once you get the first cells, that will give you you life. Now, the problem from that, of course, is how did we get here? And how did all the other animals and plants get here? Now, a possible answer to that was suggested in 1859 when two biologists the well-known Charles Darwin and another one by the name of Alfred Russell Wallace, published their theories of evolution. They were both uh, essentially the same, these two theories, and they'd arrived at them independently. Uh, Darwin was a bit uh, hesitant about um, publishing because he thought it was gonna create um, trouble Uh, But when he heard that uh, Wallace was going to publish, they came to an agreement and they published together. And the theory, basically, of evolution said that when living things produce their offspring, there were sometimes slightly different um, aspects to the parents. Now, if these differences gave the new generation an advantage in some way, either preventing it from being eaten, uh, making it run faster or a harder skin or something like that, or um, enabled them to catch their prey more more easily, then it's likely that over time, those individuals would would survive uh, um, to a greater extent than the rest of the population. And so, over time, we would get more and more of those um, in the population. Now, there's quite good evidence uh, for this sort of thing happening. But, it's the next point where we get to what was a big problem for many people. They suggested that over millions and millions of years, Um, A very large number of these small changes could have explained how everything in in the living world arose. So you could get to you or I from a single-celled organism in a million or billion steps, very small steps, now there was absolutely no evidence for that. It was only a theory. Within ten years, though, nearly all of the bio- biologists, sorry, nearly all biologists had accepted the theory. Many scientists claimed that everything about the origins of the universe and living things in our uh, under, including ourselves, at least in principle, could be explained in purely physical or material terms. Many came to believe in this materialistic view of the world and it said basically that the material world was all there was. That obviously left no room for faith in God and these ideas have I think permeated the thinking of many people in the developed world so many people have come to think science has actually disproved religion now I think you can see from what I've said that what we've got um, what they produced is a kind of outline of how human beings and all the different animals and plants might have arisen they haven't filled any any detail in they haven't explained all the different steps it's just an outline now lots of people hearing these kind of views I think accepted them and In some cases, in fact, I think in many cases, perhaps the majority of cases, people didn't necessarily understand all of the arguments um, that I've been mentioning. Um, But they they understood the general conclusion that people had come to, that we live in a material world and that's all there is. That was the the conclusion and they took on board that attitude, that sceptical attitude, and in, the, um, in fact if you'd have studied philosophy at that time in the, in the really early um, 20th century uh, in many places you, you would have um, been told well we don't need to deal with anything to do with different theories of what actually exists, we now know we live in a material world, it would have just been stated as a fact. Now since then, and it's a very gloomy sort of place we're at at the moment, aren't we? Since then, there have been developments which I believe have shown problems with this materialistic view. Of course, Christians believe that God's existence cannot be proven. Faith is always necessary. But I think we can show that belief in God is a very reasonable viewpoint and certainly not disproved. Now, one further thing, of course, if the atheist view were correct, then life would have had to have started and have then evolved by evolution or some other process, unknown, with each stage happening purely by chance, with no design involved and no designer. Now if any of the stages in the process seem unlikely by chance alone then that's a problem for the atheist view. In the early 20th century um, it was discovered that the universe had not always existed Um, It actually started uh, around about 13.8 billion years ago and then it started to expand. Knowing how quickly the universe was expanding people could work backwards and work out assuming it started from a point when that would have been. But that raises a problem doesn't it? How could it have started? Because if it started from a point, um, that that was the beginning of the material world, there was no material then before before that point. So how could that get going? So that suggests that something non-material had started it. God, okay, that's a, a distinct possibility, isn't it? Now, if the the universe developed from a point, it's possible to model the expansion uh, of the the universe using an equation. Now, I'm not going to bomb you out with maths. For a start, I don't understand it. (laughs) Um, There are two types of things in this equation. One is variables, like how long... Has it been since the start of the universe. How big is the universe? Those things will change of course. Um, Time will make it bigger. And there are also constants which are just numbers, things that don't change. One of those is the uh, strength of gravity. It has a, a definite value. Now, using the maths, it's possible to work out, as I've said, suggested already, how big the universe would be at a particular time after its start. Now, at this point, somebody had the bright idea of changing the constants in the equation to see what would have happened if they'd been slightly different. So they played around with the figures And what they found was extraordinary. A real shock. Even the tiniest changes uh, in many of the constants had a catastrophic effect. There are about 20 of them that have to have almost exactly the right values. Otherwise, with some of these changes, universities would have started but then collapsed back again. So you have a the big bang, followed by the big crunch. Or with others, they might have flown apart uh, and just gone on expanding um, and left no time for um, matter to to have coalesced, which is necessary in order to form heavy elements. I mean, we're made up of things, iron, um, carbon, of course, oxygen, And so on. These are are bigger elements than the ones that would have formed if everything had just flown apart. Now, if we look at um, these these, um, fixed uh, values that the universe has to have, we have to sort of imagine or um, we'll have to think of how that, those fixed values came about and one um, explanation of course is that a designer chose the constants that we've actually got in our universe God another uh, explanation that was suggested by Stephen Hawking and other, other people is that when the universe formed, it wasn't alone. There are actually billions and billions and billions of universes, all with different values, and we happen to live in the one which enable us to develop. Um, There's no evidence for that um, being the case. In fact, if you imagine... um, somebody standing on the surface of the moon with a a rocket propelled dart that they can fire at the earth the chances of having the right values for the variables would be similar to the chances of that dart player on the moon hitting the bullseye of a dartboard on the earth it's incredibly small. So, every um, the scientific community really is divided into theists and people who believe in a, in the so-called multiverse. As I say, there's no e- direct evidence for that. Explaining how life got started, which seems so easy in Darwin's time, is now much more difficult because we now realise that even the simplest forms of life are incredibly complex. In the 19th century, microscopes could only magnify up to about 2,000 times. Now that, that, of course, only shows limited detail. So only limited detail could be seen in cells. Nowadays, we've got much more Powerful microscopes and other techniques for investigating the makeup of cells. And that's revealed their amazing complexity. Large numbers of chemicals are needed for even the smallest cells. Sorry, I'll try and miss it next time. (laughs) One of these is DNA. Right. Now there's a picture of DNA. DNA and I'm going to simplify what I say about DNA, you'll see there that it's the well-known double helix pattern. Um, Two helixes, helices, um, joined together by those nice coloured bars. Now, the the only function really of, or the only reason for needing two helixes, or helices, is when cells divide. When animals or plants grow, um, cells have to divide, new cells have to form. And what actually happens is that the DNA in each cell divides into two separate strands. And because there are lots of chemicals floating around in the cell, other particles uh, join onto those two strands in the the new separate cells and form new double helixes. So you start off with a double helix, it splits, other things then join onto those two helixes and form new double helixes, one in each of the new cells. as far as our issues are concerned what really matters um, can be explained simply looking at one of those strands at a time. Now you'll notice that those strands have um, coloured bars attached to them. Those bars represent bases. If you look up on the, the um, picture, You'll see adenine, thymine, cytosine and guanine. Just four different bases. And as you can see, as you go along the the strand, um, there are many bases, obviously, in each strand. And obviously, each of the four bases has to repeat every, every so often. But those bases carry important information what they they enable the dna to do is to code to form proteins and obviously when living things are growing um, the the cells have to divide and new new proteins have to be formed and all the chemicals to form the the proteins are within the cells. Now those those um, bases, I mean it's a bit like a charm bracelet if you think about it, a strand and hanging on it at regular intervals are these bases. But the bases have to be in the right order, otherwise the organism will be defective if they're slightly wrong or it won't form at all you'll end up with a chaotic situation now if you look at it from the atheist point of view if um, organisms are going to form what you're going to have to have is DNA with all the bases in an order that works Is that possible? Well, let's have a a look at some examples. There's another picture. That's actually just showing you what the, the chemicals are. Another representation. This is where the strands are separating. I referred there to uh, mycoplasma genitalium. Now that has the the smallest number of genes in any naturally living organism, 525. I don't know how many bases that corresponds to. The smallest genome of all, carcinella rudiae, has 182 genes with 159,662 pairs of bases, double helix, so there's a pair each time you go along the strands. So you've got to have 159,662 bases all in the right order to form carcinella rudii. That is a man-made organism. It doesn't exist naturally. Um, Mycoplasma genitalium, 525. Roughly two and a half times as many genes and probably two and a half times as many base pairs. They all have to be in the right order. Um, to give you another way of thinking about this, um, how many people here are bridge players? Any? Oh, right, okay. <laughs> well, you, you, you all know what a pack of cards is, um, is like. Uh, four suits with, with, um, with 13 in each. Ace, um, two, three, four, et cetera, going up to a king. Now what's the chances of shuffling a pack of cards and dealing it out and you've got all the suits um, spades, hearts, diamonds, clubs all with the cards in the order ace, two, three, four, five up to king. How likely is that to happen? There are 52 cards there to get in the right order um in Carsonella Rudii, if that had formed by chance, there are one hundred and fifty nine thousand six hundred and sixty two bases that have got to be got in the right order. could that be formed by chance so the darwin russell theory um predicted that the first living things would have developed slowly. Changes occurring every so often and occasionally producing slightly different variants and eventually new species. It gets to be so different that it's now now a different species. Now graphically that would produce a tree like structure that's actually um, one of Darwin's drawings. Um, change was expected gradually, and you can see the branches are occurring all the way along these, these strands, and that's what Darwin predicted was going to happen. So, what actually happened in practice? Well... <clears throat> What actually happened was was surprising. Um, For billions and billions of years, only very simple organisms developed. Just jellyfish, worms, sponges and single celled organisms. Then all of a sudden, around 460 million years ago, in what's known as the Cambrian period, all of the, the various phyla that's the main types of living things known appeared within about 20 million years now 20 million years as, as you can see compared with billions and billions is a short time space and yet th- they all appeared within that within that period um So what caused that to happen? People have suggested various things but it's hard to to come up with with a convincing explanation I think. Another problem is that animals and plants sometimes have a number of components which are all needed to give the organism an advantage which will work and aid its survival. Now, a good example of that is something known as the Bombardier Beetle. Now, the Bombardier Beetle um, has two tank-like organs uh, which make different liquids. It can squeeze those tanks and that shoots these two liquids out the back of the beetle when it sees something it doesn't like. And when the liquids mix, it goes off with a loud pop or if there's more a bang. Uh, so it's a defence mechanism that the beetle that the beetle has. Now the point is none of the none of these bits that the Bombardier Beetle has got, which enable it to do this, would be the slightest bit of use unless they were all present. Um, it needs two containers it needs the ability to make the two different liquids. It needs, it needs to be able to squeeze the tanks so as to shoot the liquids out the back. It needs to shoot them far enough away from its body so it doesn't do itself any harm. And uh, they, they need to um, produce a, a, a reaction, which is scary. Now there are lots of things like that in nature where it seems that there are a number of different components all of which have to be in place before there's any advantage to the organism. Now could that happen by chance? Um, With nothing working at all until they're all in place so you get one bit in place, then another bit then the third bit and so on and then suddenly it all works could that happen the other possibility is that suddenly uh, there's a change in the DNA and they all appear at once does that seem very likely um, another problem is consciousness uh, we're all conscious beings at least probably most of the time <laughs> um, now, how, can, how does that come about? Um, how can you make out of something purely material something that can, that can feel pain? I mean, if you go to the dentist and you don't bother to have an ana- anaesthetic and the, de- the dentist drills into your teeth and hits a nerve, you're like to jump out of your seat, aren't you? Um, now I can see that it's possible to build a machine that could react to something being drilled into it. Um, in other words, it, it, it could make a movement, or it could flash a light, or something like that, when you when you do something. But could it actually feel pain? I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure I can swallow that. Another um, problem of course are out of body experiences which lots of people have reported and um, that also I think challenges the materialistic view. Taken together these issues seem to, to me to make pure materialism which emerged at the end of the 19th century and was accepted by many unlikely everything happening by chance seems too unlikely. The involvement of non-material intelligence, such as God in the processes above, is clearly plausible or likely. So while we can't, while we can't prove the existence of God, faith in him is clearly a valid option, in spite of what many have been led to believe. Now the modern scientific developments I've mentioned are not well known in general and nor are their implications discussed much in churches, I think. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse um, I think materialism, uh, which many people have become so used to, um, has made that very difficult to to see. Certainly at one stage I, I would have found that difficult uh, to see. But if you look at the, the points that I've been making through here, I think the materialistic picture uh, seems much less... Um, obvious much less proven Um, and a belief in God therefore becomes a very much more reasonable view (laughs) now it's later than I thought it was Uh, (laughs) so um, maybe we haven't got time for questions and answers and we probably ought to go on to the last hymn I think You will look at